Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. David Usher, a family physician specializing in weight loss and healthy eating. But first... Before we get to the meat of the topic, you might say, Tom, <laughs> we, want to invite our, <laughs> we want to invite our listeners to attend the 2021 Annual Education Conference of the Catholic Medical Association. We truly believe many of our medical professional colleagues and students are aching to reconnect in person after a superabundance of online and virtual meetings. This year's conference topic is The Joy of Medicine, and the conference will be held at the family-friendly Caribe Royale in Orlando, Florida, October 7th through the 9th. All rooms are suites, and there's lots of activities for the kids. And Tom, you got to tell listeners about an unheard of money-back guarantee, something I've, I don't think anyone has ever done in conference land. Because people attending their first conference in the CMA come away just excited about growth in their faith, or fellowship with new friends, uh, or an intellectual formation. And a part of this conference will be the dynamic keynote speaker, former Swiss guard and dean of the business school at University of St. Thomas in Houston, Mario Ensler. He's incredibly humorous, and he has deep insights to share about the joy of St. John Paul II, who he served. Tom, you and I have both had the pleasure of hearing Professor Ensler, and I can honestly say it's impossible to hear him speak uh, and not go away changed. So oh. this conference is really geared for physicians, for nurses, for students, for other professionals who may sense a loss of joy in their professional lives, or maybe who are looking for ways to rekindle that one-time joy. And you know what? Even if you do not have a joy deficit, getting together in person with like-minded colleagues from around the country will certainly energize you. You just got to come to this conference. You will not be disappointed. For information, go to the CMA website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And now on to something completely different, food. Why are we doing episodes on food? Because we've had so many questions from people about food, and we have tried to parse out ourselves over the last several years. You know, what is the reliable information? I know that Chris and I in our own journeys are, are getting closer to what fits with feeling healthy and what the literature says. Well, and I'm sure in dermatology, just like in my specialty, in every medical discipline, food, weight management, obesity, it's an epidemic. You know, we've had uh, our good friend, Dr. Dave Comences, cardiology, talking about how horrible the epidemic of obesity is on America's health. And what better topic to address than food? This idea that food is killing us um, is a strange concept, but a very, very important one for everyone's health. So we are envisioning a series of shows on food, and this one was going to be the overview uh, and include a Catholic view or a holy view of food, maybe a thought you've never had before. One of the things that we noticed is that um, life expectancies among the wealthiest countries in the world, we are at the bottom of the list of life expectancy. U.S., 78 and a half years average life expectancy, but among the 13 wealthiest, wealthiest countries where we are, the average life expectancy is four years more than that. And part of it is not only tobacco and suicide and homicide, but it's we consume more and less healthy food than just about anywhere in the world. It, it is remarkable. If you visit uh, another part of the world outside uh, of this, the Western hemisphere, I think you come away realizing we are drowning in calories. Uh, and many would say, we're actually eating ourselves to death. It's funny, but it's also incredibly tragic. Yes. And, you know, the catechism even addresses it. Paragraph 2290, it says the virtue of temperance, you know, self-control uh, disposes us to avoid every kind of excess, including, it says, the abuse of food. There are also passages on, uh, you know, respect for health and how we are responsible to take care of our bodies. And so as a service to listeners, we want you to understand better uh, what the latest understanding of healthy food is and how we can actually uh, feel better and be better if we eat a certain way. 
Yeah, I can't wait uh, to hear more from our guests because consumers trying to do the right thing will find it very difficult because there's so much marketing. Um, there's so much misinformation and mythology out there about what is actually healthy and, and what is not. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, we envision doing a whole series of uh, food and healthy eating and how do we make ourselves better versions of ourselves by eating better and better food. That's a great way to put it, Chris. And it's a lead in to our medical trivia question of the day, the category calories American style. According to data from the United Nations published four years ago in 2017, it said that the average American consumes just under 2,900 calories of food, or did in 1961. 2,900 calories a day in 1961. How many calories of food did the average American consume by 2017? Or look at it this way, what percentage change in calorie consumption did the average American experience? And as a bonus question, within that change, what type of food saw the biggest increase? And this food increased from 276 calorie a day average to almost 700 calories a day per person in the United States, a two and a half fold increase. As usual, you're gonna to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be back here on Dr. Doctor with Dr. David Usher talking about food after the break. Welcome to today's special guest interview with Dr. David Usher, who founded Reform Medicine in 2011 in the Eau Claire, Wisconsin area. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine and the American Board of Family Medicine. He went to college at Creighton in Omaha and the University of Iowa Medical School. He did a family medicine residency through Duke University. And he also spent a couple of years in Kodiak, Alaska, taking care of some area uh, natives. He spent about 12 years practicing within the Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And now he's uh, a medical director for weight management services uh, at Mayo. Oh, oh he was director of weight management services at Mayo Eau Claire. Uh, but now he has a direct pay medical practices, focuses primarily on uh, obesity care, medical care, and physician-led weight loss visits. He's active in a number of other things, but we're going to learn about food from Dr. Dave Usher. Dave, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Uh, welcome back, I should say. Well, thank you, doctor. It's great to be here. So even though uh, Dave's experience is obesity and weight management, we're going to focus on food itself in this episode, and hopefully in future episodes, episodes, dive into some of the details. So let's start basic. Why do we eat? Oh, gosh. Great question. Everybody's probably going to have two or three answers to that. Um, obviously, the, the initial answer is, well, because we have to nourish ourselves and um, have energy to get through the day. And uh, But also, there's as kids, it's growth and development and developing those that brain power that we need as we get older. Now it, it gets more complex when you introduce in kind of social systems and holidays and so forth. It becomes a cultural thing, which is uh, just a ton of fun. A lot of our stuff that we do every year at holidays and so forth revolves around food. So there's a, a social aspect, a cultural aspect to it. People, certain people will eat in response to stress. Uh, and so uh, there's some effect of that. Um, but mostly it's just grow, uh, growth and development so that we can um, survive and reproduce, really. That's our that's the most basic concept. So is there a separate answer to the question, what is the purpose of food? Well, if I, uh, I guess I would restructure the answer slightly in that um, it depends on who you ask. I mean, if you look at the purpose of food for, for uh, humans, well, we, we have, um, again, it's those growth and development and and uh, sustain ourselves long enough to have our kids and, and raise them and so on. So, um, but really, otherwise, I mean, there are micronutrients and there are big energy sources in there. Um, but basically, we have to have an energy source just like any other organism. Uh, and then you throw on there again. Some people will look at food as only that. And other groups of people will look at food as a great source of uh, joy and uh, time together and cultural, social events that, that go on with food. So uh, really, that there's a little bit of uh, variation what you'd expect to find in that answer. 
So within the concept of food, there's the concept of nutrients. What are those? So that's a great question. What is I, it's when I go back to my medical school training 25 or 30 years ago, um, you, you could ask that question. So what is a nutrient? Well, I've always heard that they're just kind of this rote answer of, well, there are three macronutrients and then there are all these micronutrients um, and all of those, all of those, and those all work together to make the body run. So a macronutrient is, of course, the three things that we hear about a lot. Those are the big, the big energy sources, the fat, the protein, and the carbohydrate that we consume. And then a micronutrient is something that usually comes along for the ride. It's the little uh, thing that makes the enzyme work or helps catalyze a reaction that makes uh, everything else happen. And so those are the little things like magnesium and selenium and calcium and uh, and so forth. They're not directly providing energy to the body, but they're very essential in the things that um, the processes that make the body run. So do we need fat? Do we need carbs? Do we need proteins? Now that gets to the heart of this question. What really is nutrition? What's nourishing? What's a nutrient? So yes. from, from my perspective, um, I would say the answer is yes, you need fat, protein, and carbohydrate as energy sources. I would say the difference in, in those three uh, is that there are uh, certain parts of proteins, certain parts of fats, what we call essential amino acids and essential fatty acids, that are, it's essential that we find them as food. We have to eat them. Yes. You know, um, if we don't eat them, we don't survive because our basic processes um, uh, can't go on and we and they break down. So, um, however, if you look at that from the standpoint of a carbohydrate, if you look at that as a macronutrient, what they call a macronutrient, uh, carbohydrate really is something that we can produce in the body, uh, mostly within the liver, uh, but you, that is something that our system can produce for us. Uh, in the ways that we need it. And it's very much the fact that you can survive without ever eating carbohydrate if you didn't have it available. So it is an, it's an energy source for the body uh, when it is the thing that we happen to be eating. But if you don't happen to be eating it, the body simply doesn't need it and it makes its own. So that that's what we get into when we talk about fasting blood sugars. That's if you haven't eaten anything carbohydrate in 12 hours and your blood sugar is still normal. That's because your liver is kicking it out there for you. So, so what, what does is, the liver make the glucose from if you're not taking in carbohydrate? Uh, it's making it from other things. Amino acids, I think, are a source of that. Some of the other nutrients that we do eat get broken down and reprocessed versus various, in various pathways that uh, wind up with what we call gluconeogenesis. The body will just create it um, new out of, not out of nothing, it'll create it out of <laughs> something else. Um, but it, it will make new glucose for us. And glucose is basically that common currency of carbohydrate that runs through our system. Very good. So when we talk about health, there's a lot of definitions of health, but what, what, how do we know that we are eating food to promote the health of our body as opposed to the detriment of the health of our body? Oh, that's a great question. And the answer, that that is everybody's question, right? That's everybody's <laughs> exactly. question, right? Our obesity practice uh, thrives because that's such a hard question for people to answer uh, yes. given the confusion in the, um, in the media and literature and so forth about what really, how do you answer that question? Uh, so how do we know that we're eating the right stuff? Well, the, the answer is, um, it, I mean, I, it's simple and complex. Um, basically, we need to get enough protein into our system every day. Our body's very good at, by the way, regulating our, our hunger around our, what I call our true hunger. There's a, there's a craving hunger that goes along with uh, things like carb, sugar and, and so on. But that true hunger that our, is our system really telling us, hey, man, it's time to eat. Uh, I'm starting to break down here. It's, it's getting dangerous. So when our true hunger strikes up, the things that will satisfy that are, are the fats and the proteins, uh, particularly ah. the proteins. And so when people are thinking, gee, what do I need to eat? Uh, 
what I suggest to them is they start with their proteins because that's the that is kind of the key thing. Fats tend to come along for the ride with protein. So if you're having a piece of uh, chicken or turkey or meat or something, that'll have a little fat with it, uh, and people will you'll get a little of that fat as you go. Um, and again, so carbohydrate not really necessarily essential. I don't want to focus on too much of the detriment of carbohydrate, but bottom line is there's a, a hormone that our body also produces a lot of, uh, and that's called insulin. And if we eat too much carbohydrate, insulin starts to cause a disease within our systems. Right. And we'll save the details of that for another episode, but sure. I'm fascinated by this topic of craving hunger versus true hunger. How do we know what our experience is in the moment, which one of those it might be? Uh, it's a great question. And I, the, the answer is kind of uh, empirical in the sense of, um, again, um, this is from my obesity background. So when we're treating patients who are trying to figure out which that is, uh, we'll tell them, well, gosh, have a, have a couple ounces of uh, chicken breast or eat a couple ounces of that steak you made last night and then wait a few minutes and see if you're still hungry. Um, because oftentimes a craving will be confused for hunger and vice versa. And if it's continue, if people are continuing to crave, despite the fact that they just, uh, uh, chowed down on four or six ounces of steak, yes. you know, that thing that they are now, they can be rest assured that that is just a craving for something else. Which means they don't need to eat. Which means, um, yes. Yeah, so if that is a craving in the sense of the psychological, Yes. Um, kind of, I don't want to call it addiction, but that drive that people have um, are craving things that they don't really need, but they want um, or like them, then no, they wouldn't need to eat that any particular thing. So if they eat four or six ounces of meat and they still have a craving for a chocolate chip cookie, uh, for example, um, they can rest assured that, let's just, assuming they've been eating normally all along, that they just had a big protein load and... Um, and now maybe the thing that they're still craving, it could be the, a combo of, of fat and sugar. But again, most of the time, oftentimes, kind of protein in the whole food sense um, will come along with a little fat. And, and that protein-fat combination is pretty darn satisfying for what, I, what we think of as the natural hunger. Okay. And is that driven? There's, there's a hormone I've heard called ghrelin. How is that related to hunger, at least true hunger? Yeah, ghrelin is a, is a is an appetite hormone, and that is um, what we see when people have not been eating um, in, in normal individuals. We see it in people who have not been eating, and so the ghrelin will go up, and that will drive that will drive. It kind of is the drive for that natural uh, desire for to natural eat. hunger. Yeah. Okay. So, what would if if it's not ghrelin, what's the drive for the craving hunger? Uh, that becomes. I look at that more of a psychological, from a psychological standpoint, there's okay. dopamine, Very good. Uh, maybe yep. serotonin uh, behind that. Those are things in the brain centers that are associated with uh, excitement, satisfaction. Um, for example, dopamine like goes up, you know, in the setting of uh, uh, sexual interaction, for example, that's, that's a very exciting right. kind of thing. It's just a different thing from, from hunger. Uh, people get excited about their food or if they're stressed out and they have, uh, something they eat and then their serotonin level goes up and they just feel less anxious because serotonin is kind of gives us a sense of well-being. Very good. Let's, this is a Catholic show. So let's go to the catechism in paragraph 2834. It says, even when we've done our work, the food we receive is still a gift from our father. It's good to ask him for it and to thank him as Christian families do when saying grace at meals. So Dave, what do you think a Catholic or holy attitude toward food uh, would look like? Because as Americans, there's a, a plethora of different views of food out there. Right. Well, I, the word stewardship comes to mind um, when we think of uh, the gifts we are given and the things that we have in our lives. We have to be we have to be mindful of where that comes from, and we have to be careful not to squander it. Right. We all have our prodigal son moments. Uh, however, uh, on the whole, our job is really to to take care of those resources so that we can 
pass along, you know, the love of God and Jesus to others and so forth. Uh, and the way for us to best do that is to be as healthy as we can be. Let's not take ourselves places we don't have to go with physical illness, right? Yes. So, so if people can kind of understand what foods are more likely to cause them ill health and disease and disability and dependence on others and get in the way of their ability to carry out their mission in life, um, then with that knowledge, I think they should be able to uh, do a little better job um, and it's a challenge in this culture, I get that, uh, but do a little better job of eating in a way that's that's likely to give them a better health uh, trajectory down the road. One of the seven deadly sins is gluttony. At what point does eating become gluttony? I Well, that's a great question. I think of gluttony uh, almost as a as a eating because I can kind of mentality, you know, I've got this here and I'm going to eat it because I have it. I bought it. I own it. And, um, you know, it's really good and I'm going to eat this. So that guy can't have it. I mean, there's a certain amount of kind of that. I think that's different from just kind of overeating because something's really yummy. I think there's almost an attitude behind that, but I, I might be wrong about that. I haven't studied gluttony from a, a Christian Catholic perspective, I guess, in that sense. Um, but I, I think of when you say gluttony, you think of it as a, in the same, that seven sins are like lust. Okay, that's right. That's a different thing than kind of just admiring somebody for their for their natural beauty, right? Lust is a whole nother level. Right. Uh, and gluttony, yes. I think, is a whole nother level from just, ooh, that was yummy. So let me ask a different question, perhaps not uh, related to sin, but are there any signs that we can detect in ourselves when we are overeating for what our bodies need to optimally function? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, the answer to that is, yeah, that's very interesting. So our, our approach is basically with, with fat and protein, it's very satisfying and people will, they'll simply lose their, their natural appetite or drive to eat. Um, it's, it, for example, you take people into a restaurant and, a st you know, all you can eat, let's say you go to, I would imagine going to an all you can eat steakhouse, right? People would have yes. one steak, maybe two, but they would stop at that. Um, right. They would then order dessert and they might have the baked potato and a couple of beers and eat all the bread. Right. <laughs> And if they yes. bring them more, they might eat more bread. Yes. Would you like another steak, sir? No, I'm good. But I'll take some. I'll take another glass of whatever. The thing, the sugar and carb-rich stuff is what people tend to go for, without the same kind of limitation, because there is no feedback mechanism um, from those types of foods to say, you know, um, you've had all you need. Because the, if the liver makes this stuff for us, the answer is we really don't need any. And so I think of it as the creator gives us a, a reflex mechanism that's a, a, sh a feedback mechanism that says, okay, I eat my fat or I eat my protein or both. And just the natural hunger shuts off. I eat this um, bread or dessert or in college at Creighton, we had this place downtown that served endless, all you wanted spaghetti, right? And we oh. thought we were making money there. <laughs> yeah. We were making money there. $8, that's fine. That's an investment. This is not an expense. I'm making money. Yeah. So we would have bowls and bowls of this stuff. But it, you wouldn't stop until you started feeling sick. Right? So, so if you are overloading on the stuff that's going to make you unwell in the long term, it's, you can really, it'll make you feel unwell in the short term. You'll start to feel bloated, start to feel like, Oh, I couldn't eat another bite. I just feel like I got to go lay down. Those are those are signs that that it's time to to shut it off. Whatever it is that you just ate, you missed the signal before of gee, you're just not hungry any longer. It's now you're just piling it on. You kind of missed that opportunity to stop when you should have. Uh, so does it, it? It sounds like there might be a, a natural message that tells us when we've had enough protein and fat, but there's not a natural message that tells us when we've had enough carbs. 
That is that is how I describe it to my patients functionally, yes. And I think okay. that is true. Okay, very good. Do you have any particular passages of the Bible that you like regarding food? Yes. <laughs> uh <laughs> And there, the one I mentioned the other day isn't coming to me. Right? Well, um, I guess it's not a great answer, but uh, Jesus didn't feed the five thousand with just loaves. He had to have some protein. <laughs> 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 That's one of them, but that that wasn't the best one. That was the one that. That's that a good one. Up. If you think of it, lay it on us at I'll any time. Around. You're welcome to uh, to interrupt. Okay. So uh, this is actually a good place about halfway through the interview to stop, but we'll be back with more fascinating information about food here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with the second half of our interview on food with Dr. David Usher. Dave, we keep hearing in the news stuff about food that makes our heads spin. Today, carbs are good. Next day, they're bad. One day, eggs are good. Next day, they're bad. Fat is good. Fat is bad. Meat is bad. Meat is good. Why are we so darn confused about what we should and shouldn't eat in this country? Oh, gosh. Uh, that's Yeah, that's a really, really great question, Tom. They're... The answer starts with something like because there's so many different uh, people, groups, uh, companies, organizations, governmental structures interested in uh, the shape of that answer, really. Um, and you and we can go back and talk about this going back decades, um, but there are all different kinds of lobbies. I mean, we see it, it's the same thing that's going on in government now has been going on for probably forever, um, right? Somebody's been lobbying somebody for something. And so uh, the messages get mixed. Um, nobody, I, the way I think of it is, I don't think there's uh, an evil, uh, it, entity out there trying to necessarily make us all sick from our food. But I think things, human nature being what it is and uh, politics and government being what it is, there are lots of groups that are free to have their input and science isn't perfect and nor will it ever be. So there's just lots of influence on governmental policy, governmental messaging. I mean, we've seen this with the coronavirus pandemic. It's just not perfect, right? So um, what comes out uh, one day, somebody will come out with another study and some entity will come across with their studies. And this might be the people that make sugar. And this might be the people that make uh, polyunsaturated vegetable oil. And, and all these groups have an influence on, on things and on politicians and on groups. And, and those groups change. You'll be elected new officials every four years, so every two years, really, in Congress. Right. And all those people get lobbied, and they, they learn things, and they think they're doing the right thing. And those messages, it's shifting sands. That's the best way to describe it. The wind And our, our, goal, our goal on this uh, series that we hope to do with uh, Dr. Dave is to uh, unravel some of that. Uh, and I was surprised at how much good science there is out there on what we're going to share slowly through some episodes. Uh, something practical. It, it came up when I used to spend some Saturday nights with my grandma watching Bob Newhart back in the 1970s. There was an episode of that show where somebody pointed out that he always chewed his food 32 times and he just couldn't do it more or less than that. It's an extreme example, but I know that I have a tendency to eat too rapidly. How do we know if we are eating too fast or too slow? Is there any rule of thumb? Well, that is a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't have in my brain fixed a scientific answer to that. What I will say is um, that there's good experience. I think there's been good studies that show that people can get equally full on a small amount versus a larger amount if they eat it over a certain period of time, let's say 15 minutes. So if you eat mindfully, in other words, Chew your food slowly, put your fork down between your bites, um, enjoy the food, savor the flavor, um, and and swallow, maybe take a drink of water, and then uh, wait before you take your next bite. At the end of 15 minutes, you will be equally satisfied by a much smaller portion than if you just sit down and make money like we did in college on spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's an excellent point. So would you say in general, people who eat that way, eat slower, 
are more likely to have a normal body weight than those who don't? I would say yes, more likely. So that might be one of the simplest life hacks to uh, achieving a normal weight without having to count calories. I think that's a, that is a simple rule of thumb, yes. Mindful eating. Mindful eating. I like that. Just be aware of what you're eating. Yeah, otherwise, uh, sometimes uh, we feel like we're at a filling station, and that's not what food is meant to be. Right. Fill her up as fast as you can and shut the pump off. My, no, but, no, no. A, friend of my, uh, a friend of my son's told me that um, she was raised to eat bites small enough that when you're chewing, no one can tell you have it in your mouth. And that was interesting. That was their uh, anti-gluttony advice at home. Small enough so people can't see. That's interesting. Now I remember um, I toured Bancroft Hall once, which is the dining hall at the U.S. Naval Academy. And I remember being told that first-year students had like some insane. It was either 15 minutes or 20 minutes to eat a meal. And they had to finish it all within that time. How would that experience have contributed to eating too much or too little? Oh, gosh. Yeah, and imagine how um, how much those guys who are, if they're, particularly if they're working really hard physically, uh, are looking forward to that food. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, that 15 or 20 minutes, um, that's teaching efficiency. I think I would leave that up to the elite military people. <laughs> To eat in that way, <laughs> because those elite people are also burning calories, doing things that are very elite that most of us aren't doing. Yeah. Yeah. We shouldn't try to imitate that. Right. In prepping this episode, you came up with a term. I hadn't heard the term. I think I get part of the concept. You talked about eating ancestrally. So does that suggest that over the, cent- the millennia and centuries, we've shifted the way we eat as human beings? That is exactly um, the point of of the term. Uh, if we uh, speaking biblically, right? So if we yes. if we think of it this way, and we go with the kind of, kind of well, let's just call it a creationist kind of approach. We've only been around six thousand years, but as Catholics, we kind of think of things a little bit differently. Uh, while God created the world and set everything in motion. Really, uh, the science would say humans have probably been around the planet for at least a few hundred thousand years as our current species, right? Homo sapiens sapiens. Right. So, um, however, uh, we we have not settled into what's called settled cultures, right? Where people sit down and they figured out that they don't have to hunt all the time and move around uh, nomadically looking for the food source. Um, and that has only been the past, let's say, I'm going to say 10 or 15,000 years. I'm spitballing this here, Tom, sorry, (laughs) but, but you get the sense that we, we have an enormous, uh, track record of survival that's worked very well for us, uh, for hundreds of thousands of years. And it's only been in the last 10 or 15, 20 millennia that we have figured out how to socialize and, and settle down into, um, civilization, right? Where we sit down and build a hut in one place and we don't move around all the time. So the ancestral eating, there's really only one type of food source that's available all year round. And that is going to be animal protein, animal fat, plants of any kind that produce any amount of energy, um, generally speaking, aren't available year round. So people talk about eating your fruits and vegetables. I would say, okay, which ones do I eat? Well, eat the ones that occur naturally. Well, what season of the year do they occur naturally? You can get blueberries and strawberries and peaches and bananas all year round in the grocery store. Right. But those, number one, the shape that they exist now is not anything like they were 20,000 years ago. If you look at a banana, ancestrally speaking, it was this big starch blob. Um, more like a plantain probably now, which is okay if you can fry it, you know, put some salt on it, um, dip it in some ketchup maybe. Um, but back in those days, it wouldn't have been very appetizing like banana is now. It'd be much more appetizing to have a big hunk of, um, you know, buffalo meat or something because there's huge energy in that. Lots and lots and lots of micronutrients, uh, calcium, fat, and so on. Very satisfying. 
Um, otherwise, eating this starchy plant thing is not going to get you much protein. And, and you're just continuously hungry and looking for more. Very good. So ancestrally, I think of it as kind of in the old hunter-gatherer days. If there was something there to pick up along the way, you'd grab it as far as plant food. But your real goal was to get to the the deer or the the seal or the fish, uh, school of fish, you know, wherever the wherever the protein was. So, looking at big concepts again, um, would you say? that a principle we can hold as true would be that the closer our food is to the way it came from nature, the better it is for us. I think that's entirely true. So in other words, the less ingredients on an ingredient list, does that go along as a corollary that that would be healthier, the less ingredients on a list? Uh, I would say that's not necessarily true. Ah. Um, If you're, if you're the first ingredient on your list is sugar or flour, <laughs> it only has three things in it, then it's not necessarily true. Um, okay. But, but yeah, one, one can be, I don't know what the logical statement is about that, but you can, you can have uh, one may be true, but the other going the other way may not be true. Like cotton candy isn't necessarily good for you. Right, right. Mostly- but Got there's it. only just okay. a, one or two ingredients in that. <laughs> yes. So the, the term diet, how did it transform from merely describing what we eat uh, into something painful I have to do if I want to lose weight? It was, yeah, it was a descriptor into a prescriptor, right? A prescription. Oh, very good. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, when did that happen? And how did it happen? Why? What drove how it? How did it happen? Yeah, yeah. So... I think you're at some point, I mean, we figured out that the things that we eat do have an effect on our health. And I don't think that was necessarily um, uh, terribly recent, but when it became uh, essentially the way I think of it is when it became monetized, (laughs) you know, everybody went on a diet. I growing up in the seventies, I had neighbors, neighbors whose mothers were always on a diet. You know, yes. and they were always talking about that. And I think that was most likely correlated with what was going on at that time, which was kind of the low fat craze. You got to get your yes. fat down because you can't have all those calories. Uh, and I remember um, lots of the, I'm, no offense, but lots of the women around the neighborhood, they were home then and dads were all at work. So I remember the the moms around the neighborhood, and they'd all get together and talk about their diet and the things that they were eating, yes. and I can't have yes. that, and I can't have this. And they'd swap these recipes and uh, and so on. I think somewhere along the line, uh, when when some group uh, figured out that or had some idea that diet was really behind, like for example, heart disease, all of a sudden it made sense that we're going to start telling people what they need to eat. Well, and and that's a nice segue into another quote from the Catechism. It says that because life and physical health are precious gifts entrusted to us by God, we must take reasonable care of them, taking into account the needs of others and the common good. And this says that concern for this means that uh, society or government should help regarding these, including food, it says. So what are the different agencies involved in food policy in our country? Oh gosh, hmm. Uh, well, <laughs> the t- the biggies. Um, depending on how you look at it, food safety is driven largely by the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, that is their kind of role is to make sure that the food supply is um, safe and what's being marketed and sold in supermarkets and so forth um, is safe. And so, but that's kind of their. In a sense, that's kind of their minimum standard. That's their bar to get over is just that when people buy stuff and put it in their system, it's not making them sick uh, or okay. or killing them, right? So that's one group. Another group would be the United States Department of Agriculture, which inherently you think to yourself, gee, that seems like that ought to be the group that really is interested in, yes. in producing healthy, really great, nutritious food. Um, and I again, I'm, I don't want to be bashing really any groups. So what I would say is 
if you uh, some time ago I looked at the USDA uh, website and their mission really was more about uh, marketing, finding markets for United States farmers than it was about um, actually producing food that's healthy, that meets all of our requirements and doesn't make us sick and doesn't make us diabetic and obese. It's more about maybe a little bit about securing the food supply, you know, like USDA certified uh, beef, for example, would be where you kind of sometimes see that. Um, but they're, they're really, their true mission is, uh, I'd almost go so far as to say it's kind of a bit of a lobby uh, for agribusiness. And, and I don't begrudge them that. We, we doctors have our gov government our lobbyists lobby. as well, right? Yeah. We've got our, yeah. our proponents in the government. So, um, but those are kind of the two biggies I think of the Institute of Medicine. I mean, there's all these scientific uh, bodies that okay. that have very stuff good. To say about and we're going to dive into some of the details of what they did in future episodes. One of the things I think one of them came up with was the food pyramid. Where did that come from? That uh, was an outgrowth again of kind of that low fat. Um, what do we call it? The heart diet heart hypothesis that said that what you eat is going to make you sick. Uh, and some of the very earliest um, people in that field or had, let's say they had the most influence uh, were the ones who uh, were able to get the studies funded to show some relationship between fat and cholesterol in the diet and, um, and heart disease. And so uh, that's kind of where that grew out of. And I, th um, I think that was a USDA thing originally, but it might not have been. I might be wrong about that. I think you're right. And that food pyramid's no longer promoted by the government. Is that right? Oh, gosh. You know, I walk into various places and I still see that old thing uh, stuck on walls and in schools and governmental agencies and so forth. I don't think generally it is promoted. No, you wouldn't find okay. that, I don't think, on a, on a U.S. federal government website anymore. At least well, not. that's a teaser. Teaser for a future episode. Right. We're going to dive into the food pyramid. RDA, tell us about that. That's a recommended daily allowance. Uh, that is a, oh, I forget exactly the term, but it's basically a construct that says this is the amount that we think somebody needs to eat in order to um, live and not be sick. Okay. Or not have a certain condition. So our, our recommended daily allowance of vitamin D, for example, at one point was like 400 units. Uh, and that was, that was just enough to prevent rickets, you know, but that was the target. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Yes. So we don't see rickets much anymore. And I, I give them credit for that, but there's lots of people walking <laughs> around with low vitamin D. So it's, it is a way of kind of suggesting how much people ought to be eating of a certain micronutrient or nutrient. Is there anything important you can tell listeners about reading nutrition labels? The, well, yes. What I would say is mostly, most foods now, and I don't know if this is true across the country, most foods now, if they have trans fats in them, they have to label that on there, right? So number one, don't eat anything with a trans fat in it. And that's very often um, stable shelf life things like donuts or something. And okay, um, so stay away from the trans fats. Uh, the, probably the most important thing that I wind up having to share with my patients is if you read the section on carbohydrate, mm -hmm. it will tell you total carbohydrate. And then it might tell you, it'll tell you fiber if there's any fiber yep. in it. And then it will tell you sugars. Yep. Those three numbers most often don't add up to say that total carbohydrate equals fiber plus sugar. And then you do the math and you find that well, heck, there's 40 grams of carbs and there's eight of fiber and there's 12 of sugar. Well, 12 plus eight only equals 20. What's that other 20? And the, the nutrition labels, they don't have to list it. It's basically another form of sugar. It's called starch. Ah. So people don't recognize that something has may have only 10 grams of sugar, but if it's 40 grams of starch, that's like eating another 40 grams of sugar. Uh, so really our... So to our bodies, starch is sugar. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, if before our next episode on food, each listener could add one thing and subtract one thing from what they currently eat to improve their health, what would those things be, Dave? 
Well, um, the the honest answer is if you're drinking any sugared beverages, that'd be the one thing I would say is the it's the easiest and it's the most widely spread, uh, most likely to be effective thing for most people. And they don't realize sometimes that they're doing it. They think fruit juice is good for them. Um, that's a hundred percent natural, don't you think? You know, so it's not but, just sodas that we should be concerned about with sugar. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So it's getting rid, rid of as much um, sugar in the diet as possible. That would be the one thing. But if you had to focus even more, I would say look at sugary beverages as the and thing. And how about to the add? Is there anything to add that you'd recommend? Um, for I, what I would then turn around and say is replace those replace those um, sugars either with free water um, or if you're if you've been using sugar for energy replace it with protein very good what final words do you have for our listeners just on the overview concept of food uh, I would say um, that this that's it's a confusing topic that's why we're talking about it um, but don't get overwhelmed. It's easy to uh, to get frustrated by this, but it really, when you break it down to, to kind of simple simple stuff, um, the things that we talked about, I think, are entirely true. Eat the most whole food that you can, um, as long as you're not nibbling on sugar cane, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, you know eat, eat the foods as whole as you can, but you're, um, I, I'm not giving you a really simple answer. But that's kind of the way I think of it is, is um, it doesn't have to, it's, it's way more complicated in what you read and see and watch and look at online than it has to be. It's really simpler well, and don't give up. Dave, thanks for being with us on Dr. Doctor. We look forward to having you again and dive into some of the details. Uh, and we'll be back with the answer to the medical trivia question of the day after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer to this episode's medical trivia question on what else but food and calories. So to recap, uh, we consumed just under 2,900 calories for the most part in 1961. How many calories or what percentage increase in caloric consumption uh, was there by the year 2017, Tom? It was a big increase. It wasn't a decrease for those of you who thought it went negative. No, the average American in 2017 consumed 3,682 calories or almost 800 calories more than they did in uh, 1961. And that's a 28% increase. And the biggest percentage of that increase was from vegetable oils. Uh, which we are learning, aren't we, that those are really not the good oils that we want to be consuming. So not only is it an increase, it's an increase in the worst possible way. Right. Olive oil's healthy, coconut oil's healthy. Outside of that, as we'll learn in future episodes, not as healthy as we've been led to believe. Well, so, Chris, speaking, of, speaking of being led to believe, yes. let's talk about uh, the three big takeaways uh, for this terrific episode. What you got, Chris? I really like what uh, what he says that you know, we all know about essential amino acids uh, and that proteins can be essential, but he points out there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. We could exist just fine and never consume a carbohydrate the rest of our lives because our liver will make all of the carbohydrates that we need. We don't ever have to eat carbohydrates. Amen to that. That's hard to kind of wrap your brain and your stomach around. That's why we'll do a whole show on carbs. <laughs> the other thing I really liked is this idea that um, there's a difference between true or actual hunger and what he calls hunger cravings. And I think if we think about that, we can all see that in ourselves. Actual hunger is going to respond to fats and proteins, but cravings, um, they don't really respond to carbohydrates. The more we consume, the more that we want. So that isn't actual hunger. That's just a craving. Yeah, there's not a natural feedback to say, oh, I've had enough carbs, but there are actual feedbacks in our bodies to say, oh, you've had enough protein, you have enough fat, you're satisfied, go do something else. <laughs> and then finally, 
Uh, I think a really important lesson for all of our listeners to try to remember is this idea that the closer the food you're about to consume is to its natural form, the better off, the less processed, the better. So just think about the things that you're eating and ask yourself, how did this exist before it got to the store? What's been done to it from the field to the store? And the less uh, that's been done, the better for our health. And along those lines, we'd love you to come up with questions you want us to ask Dr. Usher as we do these shows maybe quarterly. Any food-related questions, go to our website, drdoctor.org, ask a question and send in your question, and our wonderful producer, Andrea, will let us know what's on your mind, and then we'll find an answer. And thank you, all our listeners, for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. We hope that you'll be sure to rate our podcast when you're there listening. It helps other listeners find us. You can also listen to any and all of our episodes on our own website, drdoctor.org. So be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.